Has it got any better? Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McCourt. If Dracula can't see his reflection in a mirror, wondered Carl Pilkington, how come his centre parting is always so neat? It's a good question and possibly one we cannot answer, but we can tell you how Leicester have made it to the quarterfinals and we've half an idea why Manchester City were put to the sword by Monaco on Wednesday night. And we even have a question of our own. Just what the hell is going on in Argentina, where it's more of a mess than when that Irish postman delivers his load? Here to talk about all of that and more is One Football Newsroom's shiny new plaything, Dan Burke. Hello. And Deutsche Welle's Ollie Moody. Hello. Did anybody hear about this Irish postman story? No. Uh, I heard it head. through you, actually, Ian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to talk about it on air, so to speak, <laughs> what this Irish postman got up to while delivering his letters. But I would recommend you Google it. Okay. We'll on, the, on the incognito mode. <laughs> okay, is what I would say. We're going to get some interesting ads after this. You're going to get some interesting good, good, ads. Good. He's yes. making some special deliveries. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and somebody's got to clean all that up. <laughs> anyway, Manchester City Monaco last night. Dan, where do we where do we stand with all this? I mean, we should probably say from the start, you you are of a Manchester City disc. Yep, I do have a a foot in the Manchester City camp, yeah. Right. And, uh, and I'm therefore incredibly disappointed by the way the way things panned out, unfortunately. I thought City had done the hard work in that thrilling first leg, winning 5-3, um, taking a two-goal advantage into the second leg. And Guardiola said after the first leg that um, if City didn't score in the second leg, they'd be dead. And, and you know, there's a, a, you've got to agree with that because Monaco were fantastic going forward. We knew that they were probably going to score goals. Um and, you know, Guardiola is a high risk taker and I saw that team that he put out and, he, and it was a little bit too much of a risk for me. I can't help but thinking that had perhaps he played two men in midfield there, maybe put Yaya Torre in, then perhaps, you know, a more pragmatic approach, they might have done a little bit better. And, and if if they had conceded two goals in that first half as they did, they could at least change it up at half time and bring someone else into the game. Um, but, but yeah, they were two goals down in a dreadful first half. So he had... Um, I think they completed ten passes in the in Monaco's half in the first half. And the no, front six, no shots on goal. No shots on goal. Minutes. Yep, absolutely appalling. Um, two 0 down, and then they pulled that goal back in the second half, um, which obviously would have won them the game. I actually thought that goal came a little bit too early for City. I would have been quite content for them to get a goal in the 89th minute because <laughs> because Monaco, yeah, they dropped off in the second half, and as soon as City got that goal, they knew that they had to come out again. And, and five minutes later, they were back in front, and, and that was it. The game was over from that point. So when you, when you saw that team sheet. Did you sort of think right from then that, that Pep has, you know, messed with City's chances of going through? Yeah, absolutely. I was worried. Um, I, I know you mentioned on the um, the podcast recently that you've been reading that Pep Confidential book. Well, yes. I'm on the next book, Pep Evolution. Okay. And there's a great quote in that book about Guardiola Has it got being, any better? Uh, well, it depends what you define as better. It's okay. a lot more fawning, actually, which if that's oh, even mm. possible, but... Um, it's not. <laughs> but yeah, there's a, there's a quote in that book where it's talking about Pep being a risk taker and, you know, we need risk takers in the game. It's what makes the game so entertaining. And he says, you know, for, for someone like Guardiola to expect them to be pragmatic, you might as well ask a tiger to go and chase butterflies. And I thought that was a nice little quote, but... but you know, you look at that game last night and, and Guardiola was very tetchy in his post-match press conference when asked about the defending and mm-hmm. um, as he has been quite a lot this season actually and um, 
you just look at the way he set his team up and he sort of set them up to fail, I think. And, and like I said, it, that front six didn't do well at all, but, but they all fed into the fact that they just had no control over the midfield whatsoever. Fernandinho was really struggling in the middle of the park and just couldn't get a foothold in the game at all. And the whole t- nobody wanted the ball for City. The whole team just looked nervous from the first minute. And um, I don't think you know, an awful lot could have been done about the goals. I don't think the defending was actually that bad last night as, as City standards go this season. That's a pretty damning indictment of Pep. Yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, and his players. I mean, the midfield players. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the Yaya Torre not being in the team puzzles me greatly. Um, Pep actually said himself after the game at Middlesbrough at the weekend that he had words with Torre in front of the whole team. And I don't know why, because I thought Torre played really well in that game and has been re- playing really well all season. And yet he didn't even come off the bench last night at, at any point. And I, I, I'm really... Mm-hmm struggling to understand why. Well, I have to say, when I, once I saw that there was just one defensive midfielder in there in Fernandinho, I thought there's no way City are going to go through. Mm. I was yeah. just baffled by it. I mean, it's just it's it's just winning a cup tie, isn't it? You don't need to go into that situation mm-hmm. where we, we're going to try and win this game 6-5. Guardiola was right in that, you know, Monaco were probably going to score. They've scored 126 goals this season. They're a phenomenal team going forward and, and very difficult to stop. But I don't know, just try and be a little bit wiser about it and try and... There's nothing wrong with being a bit defensive. I know he has this philosophy and, and, and that sort of thing, but just, yeah, just, just try and a bit more game management wouldn't have gone amiss, I don't think. Do you think it shows how much they miss Gundawan as well and perhaps that they mm. shouldn't be putting so much, um, you know, so many of their eggs in the Gundawan basket when he's had so many problems with injury in the last few yeah, years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Gundawan's a great player for the transitions from defence to midfield as well. And Fernandinho is a very good player, but I don't think he's quite got that in his locker as much as, as Gundawan and even Torre as well. Um, We've seen, with varying degrees of success, the kind of 4-1-4-1 formation played by City this season. Um, and last night, it was just it just didn't work at all. It worked a bit better in the second half when he moved De Bruyne deeper. Mm, yeah, that was interesting. I mean, De Bruyne was dreadful in that first half and he's, mm. he's not been great recently at all, actually. His, his form has dipped off. What's um, up with that? Because at one stage, I was watching City during the season thinking, God, Kevin De Bruyne is one of the best players in the... not Maybe not just but the Premier mm. League, but entire of Europe like when he's on form he's astounding to watch yeah he is um, I mean I think even as recently as the first, the Monaco first leg he actually had a very good game he was mm-hmm. one of our better players in that game and then since then I don't think he's quite hit those heights and, and last night as I said he was poor um, his wife's had a baby recently I don't know if that's having any effect on him at all but he's, he looks tired he looks very very tired and, and he, he did seem to benefit from not having to do as much running in that second half and dropping a little bit deeper and, and just playing passes from deep so but it was him who gave away the, the free kick for Monaco's third goal, was yeah. it not? And then yeah. just after that, he had that free kick that sailed straight out of yeah, play. Correct. Um, you know, you could see the frustration on yeah. his face after mm. that. Mm. So who's to blame for all of it then? Because <laughs> Guardiola, I, mean, I got a quote here from him and it seems like he's trying to throw some of his players under the bus. He says, it's not about defence. Always we complain about goalkeepers and defence. No, today it was not. The problem was in the first half, we were not there. Mm. It seems to me like he's... He, He's ducking any blame himself. Well, and yeah, he's, and he, he's giving it all to them. He, he said he um, he was unable to convince his players of the way that that game should be played, and his his idea of the way that, that game should be played was that they should go out and attack and try and score goals. You know, defense is the best form of attack is the best form of defense. Um, and he said that he wasn't able to convince his players of that, which is wow, yeah, really a, a damning indictment of himself and his players. Really, it's 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 kind of a strange thing to say. Um, I, I think he has to take the blame for last night. I think. 
you know, I'm, I'm really happy with with him being at, being at the club and and a lot of things that have happened so far this season, and I'm I'm looking forward to what he'll bring in the future. But you know, he was brought in to take City to that next level in the Champions League, and and we've we've fallen at the the first hurdle in the knockout stages. Um, and I think his tactics last night were were mainly to blame for that. So realistically, the only um, title or cup he can come away with this season is the FA Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you assess his season then? From a Manchester City perspective, I know you're you're happy about a few things, but just winning the FA Cup as Pep Guardiola—that's it's not what I guess the Man City owners wanted. No, I mean if he'd asked me at the start of the season uh, whether I would have been satisfied with winning the FA Cup, which we might not even win, um, I would have said absolutely not. I would have said that that was a poor season. As the way things have turned out, the season has been up and down. There's been some very high highs and some very low lows. Um, I'm enjoying watching his team. You know, I'm kind of biased, but I think. Pound for pound, City are perhaps the, the most attractive team to watch in the league, in the Premier League, when they're on form. And and it, it, we've, we've had some incredibly exciting games this season. Um, I think part of the problem with Guardiola is that he has this thing where every little setback is considered some huge <laughs> failure and people are just queuing up to to label him a fraud and all this kind of thing. And and it, We don't need these foreign experts anymore. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We need more Craig Shakespeare's in this world. <laughs> So, yeah, overall, I think it's been um, a good season. I think Guardiola's got credit in the bank from what he's achieved previously, which, you know, you can say what you want about him having Messi or Lewandowski. I think his, his record so far is freakishly good and I think he'll be allowed time to to, to mould City in his image over the next few years. And I hope he stays longer than the three years that his contract is because I think he's going to need that to, to really transform the club. Would that still be... Uh, Guardiola's worst ever season as a coach if um, let's say City do win the FA Cup and as an Arsenal fan Dan I can tell you that you've got every (laughs) chance Um, (laughs) has he ever had a season where he's only won one trophy has he ever gone trophyless in a season obviously uh, not at Bayern no certainly not at Barcelona either I mean of Mm -hmm. course he'd never gone out before the semi-final of the Champions League before last night either Um, although I did read a stat that apparently he has the best Champions League record of any manager over his first 100 games even, even losing last night yeah, which yeah. I thought was quite strange that is true yeah. all this talk of City we should praise Monaco some they were mm, great yeah. they're a really beautiful fast attacking team it's, it's great to watch yeah totally Those um, a couple of the younger players they've got there as well have just been lighting up the well, the French league as well, but mm-hmm. the Champions League too this season with Mbappe, uh, Bernardo Silva as well. You know, it's no surprise to see all these Premier League teams queuing up to take those guys off their hands. Um, it's great to see a team that isn't one of the established big hitters in Europe um, coming out and just taking the competition by storm. That first game between City and Monaco, along with um, Leverkusen against Atleti the same night, which was 4-2 in the first leg, was possibly the most incredible night of football I've ever watched um, I was I was working at DW that night um, along with Mike De Silva who does uh, Rabona magazine and we just kept looking at each other in disbelief at how good a night of football that was obviously City contributed to that and Leverkusen too but I was amazed by Monaco that night really mm-hmm. watching it Falcao was sensational that chip he scored oh, unbelievable. for the second oh, phenomenal um, but yeah, to see the, the the exciting, quick, talented young players like Mbappe and Bernardo Silva was just a joy to watch. And similar last night, you know, um, great football from Monaco. Mm-hmm. Those two full-backs of theirs as well are both very good. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, we were purring about Mendy, them on the way Is over. it the other guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're excellent. I mean, if City could sign those two players in the summer, that would be half our problem <laughs> solved in an instant. I imagine you'd take Mbappe too. Yes, absolutely. Although I think he'll have uh, a few suitors lining up for him. Yeah. Do you know when France won the World Cup in 98, um, Kylian Mbappe's mum was three months pregnant with him? 
No. Yeah, all right. <laughs> you are joking. We've reached that age now, haven't we? Where I remember where I was for that '98 um, World Cup final. Do you? <laughs> um, I wasn't in my mother's. Uh, you weren't in mother's. I can tell <laughs> no. you that. Yeah. Okay, I was in a bar in Florida with my family on a family holiday to uh, Disneyland or somewhere like that, Orlando, watching it. I was a big Brazil fan at the time, and I was <laughs> devastated with the result. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed watching Vieira and Petit. Of contribute to France winning it, so oh, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can definitely <laughs> imagine. Um, moving on, Leicester are England's sole representative in the Champions League. I don't think I'm ever quite gonna get over that. But I have a question for both of you on a scale from Daniel Day Lewis to Keanu Reeves. Day Lewis being a ten, and you know Reeves being a one. Mm-hmm. How would you rate Jamie Vardy's acting skills? Ten, surely. Eleven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> But on a more serious scale, he did the right thing, didn't he? Yeah, uh, it's gamesmanship, isn't it? There's a fine line between gamesmanship and cheating, I think. But but I think he he was on the right side of that line there, and he he, he baited Nasri into doing something very very silly. And um, Nasri was sort of pulling the strings for Sevilla in that second half, and, and looked the most likely player to create something for them. And then he got sent off, and it was it was Leicester's game then, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I have no problem with what Vardy did at all. Um, I think it was a good overall game from him even though he had very few shots on goal I think he completed something like seven passes all game or something mm-hmm. ridiculous like that but it was just a, a game of hanging on the shoulder of the last man running the channels hassling harrying people mm-hmm. the sort of thing that was needed in that game and he, and he, he really um, interrupted Sevilla and, and put them out on the stride I mean I th- a man a man might say Nasri had to get off early to go to the drip doctors but, uh, <laughs> I don't know if we should say that yeah. I've seen um, I've seen quite a few people compare Vardy um to Suarez in the second leg of that Barca PSG tie. Um, Suarez and Barcelona got quite a lot of criticism after that. I think it, they probably couldn't care less and, you know, disappeared in um, the the sort of incredulity at, at the outcome in the end. But there was a lot of criticism of Suarez, you know, people talking about him, you know, dark arts master and all that sort of thing. Um, I don't see a big difference with what Vardy did yesterday. I wouldn't necessarily criticise either of them because I think that is the modern game. Um and if you're if you're going to get high and mighty over either player, I think you're probably sort of stuck twenty years in the past when it comes to football. Um, but I do just wish that perhaps there was a bit more. Uh, certainly, the English media, the UK media, uh, that people wouldn't try and differentiate the two. You know, I saw was it Henry Winter maybe or someone call uh, Vardy streetwise. Yeah, I don't think he used the same <laughs> phrase to describe Suarez. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I, I have no problem with it whatsoever. I mean, why no do you got to get your team? If you, there's so much at stake, and if you have to do something like that to give your team an advantage, I mean, Nasri should have been smart enough to not react. Yeah, why are but players still throwing the heads at each other on, on the football pitches? They know it's a red card offence. Why do they do it? It's ridiculous. They never learn. Yeah, they never learn. Nasri, of course. Oh, I mean, so stupid. He's always been kind of stupid, though. He's always been such a brilliant technical player. Yeah. And yet he has these kind of moments of utter petulance. He had it at Arsenal, he had it at City. Um, and it's a shame because he's had such a good season at Sevilla and it looked like he'd really resurrected uh, his career. And, that you know, you thought if he can push on from this, he could go back, you know, to the France team and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, after, after that, I feel like Sampaioli is going to, I have strong words with him and, and with the drip doctors thing too, as you're saying. Which I think he's being investigated by the Spanish anti-doping there authorities was, there too. There was talk of that. Um, yeah, it suddenly looks like it's all going down the pan again for, for Nazari. And it's, 
I mean, couldn't happen to a nicer guy on, on the one hand, but um, <laughs> it is also, from a footballing point of view, it's kind of a shame for him. He should have scored after about two minutes in that game yeah. the other night as well. He really had a really good chance to put Sevilla in front. Which would have changed everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what did anybody make of Leicester's performance? I, in, I, I don't know how to phrase this, but I'm almost <laughs> angry at them. 29% possession. But it's just the fact that why couldn't they do that under Ranieri? Now all of a sudden Shakespeare's in charge and they're back to their the best that they were last season. I find it very... I mean, there's a lot of reason not to like the current crop of Leicester players. You know, the racism, the all the stuff that went with that. Um, <laughs> but then they go and play like that when, you know, they hadn't been playing like that all season. I find that really, really frustrating. I don't know. I guess I'm, maybe I'm in yeah. the... Maybe I, I don't buy into the miracle anymore. I mean, I, maybe it's a bit of a, a gross oversimplification, but it seems to me that since Craig Shakespeare's taken over, they've just gone back to how they were playing last season, the same sort of tactics, the same team. Shinji Okazaki's come back into the team, who barely mm. got a look in under Ranieri this season. And they just look that... Um, I, I saw a quote from Vardy where he said that um, Shakespeare had kind of adopted his position again and, and he'd moved him a little bit further forward and that was helping him and that you saw that again on, on Tuesday night. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know why. Maybe... I mean, I'd heard quite a lot of things for a while about Ranieri that mm-hmm. perhaps um, he wasn't the uh, the man, the sweet, kindly old man that we see before the cameras with his players and, and not many of his players liked him even last season. So that can have a huge impact on you, can't it, if you don't get on with your boss and, and all of a sudden this guy's gone and um, I've lost count of the number of Leicester players who've said how much they respect Craig Shakespeare and, and how good he's been with the players oh, and how yeah. he was always the first first person that they would go to with any problems and things like that. So if suddenly they've got a guy who they believe in, who they like, then it's going to have an impact on the performances. And yeah, I think that the um, the decision has been vindicated already, personally. And in three games, they, they look... It's a world of difference to how mm. they were. But it's interesting that you kind of say they look like they were playing last season. Um, because the the big criticism of Ranieri has always been that he doesn't change anything. Mm-hmm. He he doesn't really, um, you know, adjust the tactics or adapt, you know, their their style of play for the opposition or whatever. And he just kind of, you know, gets them up for the game before they go out or whatever. Um, so it's interesting that after he goes, having not changed anything allegedly, someone else comes in and gets them back to how they were playing under. I don't know. There's mm-hmm. some kind of disconnect there. Mm-hmm. But I see what you mean that. Um, Basically, it seems like what you're saying is that they've they've got a boss that they like. Mm. Again, if they had gone off Ranieri, you know, they played for him for a while because it was working, and then as soon as it wasn't working, um, that does also sort of suggest to me though that maybe they weren't giving their all to turn the situation around under Ranieri. And that's the results. What fr- that's what frustrates me. Yeah, and the results would suggest that that's right. You know, that it's it's not so much a matter of tactics; it's a matter of. Um, motivation and yeah you have to ask you the reigning champions of the Premier League Premier League you're all very well paid um, you'll all probably go off to, to or some of them at least will go off to play for other teams if uh, it does all go badly uh, for the rest of the season like, why can't you get yourself up for Ranieri mm. still how far can they go oh, I <laughs> asked that a year ago no one would have said they can win mm. the Premier League and they can get into the Champions League quarterfinals so I, I wouldn't want to um, put any kind of limits on them on, on what their potential is but Gigi Buffon said he doesn't want them he doesn't want to face them they're yeah like they're, they're like this great scary unknown for him yeah and they just seem to have you know the, the, the number over everyone they just seem to be kind of um, 
blessed in whatever they do mm-hmm. in the Champions League this season. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like if they do come up against a Barca, a Real Madrid, a Bayern, that suddenly the dream might die and, and end in a end in ruins. But um, yeah, I mean. Like I say, if you'd asked me a while ago, it wouldn't have been. I wouldn't. I've never said they could achieve what they have achieved. So it's, it almost feels dangerous, kind of suggesting that they won't go on and win the whole thing. <laughs> Speaking of Gigi Buffon, um, you watched the Juventus Porto game, so we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, um, he didn't have much to do, n- did he? No, it was quite exactly. Enough yeah, I, <laughs> um, that was not the most exciting game of this round. Did you say there were sixty goals? Uh, there were 60 goals yeah, in the yeah, round of 16. Uh, one in that one. It was a penalty. <laughs> of course it was a penalty. It's Juve. Um, I it, wasn't so sure it was a penalty, by the way. I've watched oh, really? it a couple of times. Yeah. I don't know how he could have... What was the Porto defender? Um, yeah, Maxi Pereira. Maxi Pereira, was. yeah. I don't know how he could have got his hands out of the way in time. He did sort of jump into it, though, didn't he? And, and his arms were sticking out. The ball would have gone in as well. Higuain's okay. shot would have gone in. Uh, if he hadn't touched with his hand. So from that point of view, I would say, yeah, it should be a, a penalty and it should be a red card. But there is a bit of a debate going on at the moment. I mean, if I think back to Alexis Sanchez scoring against Hull um, a month or so back uh, in the Bundesliga, there was one as well. I think it was Lars Stindl for Gladbach against Ingolstadt, maybe, um, where he kind of chested the ball onto his arm and then it bounced in off of his arm. Um, forwards seem to get away with these uh, unintentional handballs. Defenders don't always seem to get the same, uh, you know, leeway from refs. And it was the same uh, with Juve against Milan last week when I think it was De Cilio, Um With a very late penalty. Yeah, 97th yeah. minute? Something mm. like that, yeah. Um, that was really harsh. It was about half a metre away. His hands was in a, a pretty natural position and, you know, it was the winning, the winning penalty. Um, yeah, so I think that you can make the argument. Personally, I feel like that is a, that is a penalty and it is a red card. Um, but the whole game generally was pretty much as you would expect. I think Juve, along with Bayern and along with Atleti, after that first leg, you knew that they were through. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't lose at home. I think they're unbeaten at home since summer of 2015 or something like that. Well, I've and- actually got some interesting stats about that. It was their 150th game at the Juventus Stadium. Mm-hmm. The, they have won 119 of them. They've drawn 26 and they've lost just five. Yeah, they haven't dropped a point in the league at home this season. No, um, and they've only conceded two goals in eight games in the Champions League this season as well. That's ridiculous. So the odds of Porto coming back from two nil down at the start of the game and certainly three nil down with ten men, yeah, it was never going to happen. They never had the quality. The one big chance they had as well, Tuquino Suarez went through um, oh, Benatia. Yeah, uh, lost his footing. Um, yeah, and, and Suarez was through on goal, one on one with Buffon. And he put it wide. It was an absolutely criminal miss. And at that point, you knew for 100% certain there was no way Porto were coming back into that game. Um, up to that point, Juve had looked very, uh, very much in control. Um, Marquisio was, you know, keeping things ticking over, as you'd expect. Dybala, when he gets going, is a real joy to watch. Oh, he's Some incredible touches, yeah. yeah. Um, and the speed yeah. of his feet are, is just sensational. Yeah, it, it, he didn't quite have the finishing touches apart from the penalty mm-hmm. in this game. Um, but some of the build-up play was just phenomenal from him. And this was in a game where Juve took it kind of at walking pace as well. You know, they really weren't pushing for a big win. They were conserving energy and, and whatnot. Um, and he's still a cut above everyone else. You also watched Atletico Bayer Leverkusen. I did, yeah. And and, and very similar kind of um, game. You know, Atleti 4-2 up after the away leg 
you, you don't see a team like Leverkusen coming back from that at Vicente Calderon, you know. Um, the fact that Leverkusen had changed their coach between the two games kind of said everything about the position they were in. Um, yeah, Atleti, again, didn't look quite as in control as Juve did. Uh, Leverkusen, I think, gave a, a better account of themselves than Porto. Um, but there was never really any danger. Um, Correa missed a couple of good chances for Atleti as well. Um, and Jan Oblak, when he's in that kind of form. Oh. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. But at the same time, you know, Kevin Folland and Julian Brandt have, got, have both got to score there. There is no... Um, there's no excuse for Brandt not putting the ball away when he's one-on-one. Mm. -on -one. And Folland from at least one of the rebounds has got to find the net. As triple saves go, it's one of the best triple saves I've ever oh, seen God, in my yeah. life. Fantastic from Oblak, no doubt about that. I don't want to take anything away from him. But um, yeah, Leverkusen will look back at that. Kevin Folland will be looking back at that and, and cry himself to sleep. Okay. Well, as you said, there's been 60 goals scored in the round of 16 in the Champions League. I want to know, should we, play, should we praise the forwards or blame the defenders? I think you have to do a little bit of both, don't you, really? Um, I want to blame the defenders <laughs> if I'm going by Manchester City last night. Yeah. Going back to City briefly, actually, they um, they conceded 16 goals in the Champions League in total this season. As many as Arsenal. Yeah, that's correct. And last season, Real Madrid won the Champions League, conceding five goals in the whole tournament. So that tells you all you need to know about where City's problems lie in the competition, doesn't it, at the moment? Yeah. Mm, that second goal for Monaco, uh, was it Fabinho who scored mm. the second goal? Yeah. Um, you usually just, he ran straight through and no one picked him up. Mm -hmm. The third and goal? Was, there was just nobody bothered marking. Yeah, no one, no one marking. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that zonal marking thing—it'll never catch on. <laughs> but yeah, the, just the fact that no, none of the defenders came out to meet Fabinho. None of the midfielders are tracked back with him. You could see that defensively, City just have never quite got that kind of. Mm. You know, because it's a team game defense, right? Mm -hmm. You can have these incredible attackers who can do everything themselves, but I don't think you can have one great defender who does it all themselves. And City were the perfect example of that last night. Okay, so eight teams left: Madrid. Barca, Munich, Dortmund, Juventus, Leicester. Again, I just can't get over that. <laughs> Atletico and Monaco. Want to put your your neck on the line here and name a winner from this stage? I'm going to go Juve. I think Juve too. You know, I think I might have actually said Juve at the start of the season here. Yeah. They're so dominant in Serie A. I think they're eight points clear at the moment. Are they um, walking that? Yeah, they've yeah. got nothing to worry about from that front. So they can rest players. Um, and when you look at as I was saying, two goals conceded in eight Champions League games so far. Strolled past Porto, not a problem. Um, the team shape that they've got is really good as well. The way um, Danny Alves and Alexandre get forward from fullback and, and the control they have in midfield. And then that quality up front I was talking about. Higuain is one of the best goal scorers around. Dybala is a wonderful player to watch. I don't see why they can't be, you know, like a Barca team that conceded four against PSG or five over two games. Um, or, you know, Real Madrid didn't look all that at times against Napoli as well. Yeah. So I feel like Juve could definitely threaten those two. And Buffon deserves it, let's be honest. Oh yeah, Buffon love definitely to see deserves it. A name before we move on to the Monaco. next Monaco. I, I fancy Monaco actually. Ooh. Yeah, I'd really like to see them do it. Is this just because of last night? Well, yeah, I just, I, they're a great team to watch, aren't they? They've got some great players, um, a, a squad um, com compiled at very little cost comparatively, um, good young players. It'd be, it should be great to see them do it, I think. Now, we had planned to talk to Daniel Edwards from Goal and Hand a Pod about what's happening in Argentina. But unfortunately, our connection is so rubbish, it's not going to work. Um, so now we're posting you, Dan Burke, in as our Argentinian expert. Hmm. And you're going to tell us all about what's happening 
down in Argentina or what happened down in Argentina. And you've got a frightful look on your face. Yeah, I have, yeah. Well, with my uh, very limited understanding of the situation, I'll try and explain it. So basically, the um, it's, it's kind of confusing the way a lot of South American football works. Um, in Argentina, they have a sort of mid-season recess in summer because I guess it's too hot to play football. So the, mm-hmm. the season ends around sort of half, the first half of the season ends around December. Uh, they break for a couple of months and then they come back in uh, February and carry on uh, second half of the season. Um, so the season was supposed to restart in the second week of February um, and it actually only restarted last week and there was a huge problem and um, the players went on strike basically and um, some of the clubs in the country were in debt to their players in terms of the salaries by up to four months um, I don't think it affected the big clubs uh, like the River Plate, Boca Juniors as, as badly, but but certain, certainly some of the smaller clubs were unable to pay their players for quite a significant amount of time. Um, the reason that was is that they had this um, initiative in, in Argentina that was brought in in 2009. Football for Todos. Correct, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was basically the government um, subsidised um, the transmission of football, so it's free-to-air football um, say free, I think you had to buy cable and pay taxes and all that sort of thing. Um, but but it's essentially free to air. You could watch it on YouTube and all this kind of thing. Um, the current in, uh, government have, have decided to scrap that and they're going to sell off the rights to, um, And the, I think they've got three bidders in the frame at the moment, um, to so, kind of sort of subsidise the debt um, that these clubs had with the players. So everyone kind of owed money. The, the government owed the clubs money, the clubs owed the government money, the Play, the, the clubs owed players' money. It was a, a complete mess, and and basically the, the players' union stepped in and said, right, well we're not playing any football until this this money's sorted. So the government uh, eventually um, we're going to make a payment, uh, which I think has, has now gone through, but it still hasn't cleared the debt completely. There's still right. quite quite a, quite a big problem, and, and eventually um, they did decide to carry on um, with football uh, last week. I think you've done a fine job in explaining yeah, that situation, well don't you Thank think, Colin? Absolutely, congrats! Yeah. <laughs> Round of applause. I mean, if you ever need, if you ever need another job, uh, Argentinian yeah. correspondent might be the one for you. Thanks. I did write a piece about this for the One Football site recently, so if you want uh, a less rambling uh, version of events, mm-hmm. then perhaps perhaps read that. Just a place to go. Yeah. I once watched a match in uh, a Boca Juniors match in Argentina, and they didn't actually show the match. What they did was they showed the stand. This is how they got around the TV. You know, they didn't have the TV rights. Mm. So they had like a radio commentator and that they would show the stands and it was mostly transfixed on Maradona's box. Mm. Yeah. As you would. Yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting way. I saw a Boca game actually in Argentina once, um, but it wasn't, it was an away game. A yeah. team called All Boys. And the company that sold me the tickets did not tell me that All Boys Stadium is called Estadio Islas Malvinas. Mm-hmm. Falkland Island Stadium and as an Englishman walking in there I suddenly realised it was quite dangerous you know Union Jacks sort of painted around the side (laughs) with a middle finger painted on top Uh, really? yeah yeah well I actually went to the Bombonera for a game (laughs) it was Raquelme's return to Boca Juniors and it was a phenomenal (laughs) atmosphere I'm sure it was a bit like Napoli during the uh, during last week when they kind of bust in the fans like you know a couple of hours beforehand that's oh, quite crazy. There's an Argentinian team called Belgrano as well. I bet that went down mm. well with old uh, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Dan, Ollie, and our producer Damien. Should you wish to get in touch with the pod, you can hit us up on Facebook at OneFootball or on Twitter at OneFootball underscore en. Be sure to also get onto iTunes and leave a comment and a rating to let us know how we are doing. Thanks for listening. Bye.